Hello and welcome to your fortnightly dose of clinical learning in this Clinical Update podcast. I'm Pat Anderson, editor of MIMS Learning, and over the next half hour, we're going to bring you insights into best clinical practice drawn from our comprehensive bank of learning materials for healthcare professionals. Although we're not clinicians ourselves, we work every day with expert authors and speakers, and we aim to pass on some of the essential learning points that we encounter. I'm here with Sangeeta Krishnan, our medical editor responsible for oncology, among other topics, and we're going to talk about managing cancer patients' expectations. After that, we'll feature an interview with our clinical advisor for women's health, Mr. Abdul Majid Abdul Rahman. He'll be talking about a problem that affects many women, but which they may be reluctant to bring up. I'm talking about urinary incontinence here. A lot can be done, as Mr. Abdul Rahman will explain. Then we'll finish up along with Dawn Powell with a look at some research that perhaps raises more questions than it answers. Over to you, Sangeeta. Hi, Pat. So for this episode, I wanted to discuss the module Managing the Oncology Patient's Expectations. Uh, it was written by Dr. Lucy Faulkner and colleagues. I thought this was a really interesting module. We have seen cancer medicine evolve significantly over the last few decades. And in parallel, patients' expectations have also changed. This module covers this topic and looks at the challenges in managing the patient's expectations. This module first looks at how cancer treatment has evolved, the various advances such as personalized medicine and advances in diagnostics, managing patient expectations, oncotherapy-related toxicities, and information about clinical trials, and understanding why patients choose to or not to participate in these trials. One notable addition in oncology is precision medicine. Treatments can be tailored to the patient's specific cancer's characteristics. This allows clinicians to predict who is more likely or less likely to respond to a drug based on the genes that their tumor cells express. So one of the first FDA-approved targeted uh, therapies, this was in 1998, was trastuzumab, which was used for breast cancer, which established the error of personalized treatment for HER2-positive cancers. And since then, there's been a surge of therapies for cancer. And of course, there's the diagnostic technologies that have been incorporated into the cancer pathway. Altogether, these innovations have led to a truly personalized approach to cancer. Alongside these developments, information about new technologies and drugs are now easily available to lay people and clinicians alike at the click of a button. Thanks to the media, people can often have a different picture of what these scientific advances entail. So could you give us an example of the type of media perception that people may get about these treatments? So one example is that of olaparib. Uh, this is a drug that was shown to reduce pain, pain burden in castration-resistant prostate cancer patients with altered DNA damage repair genes. This was covered in our March 2022 research briefing by Dr. Pauline Leonard, and this drug was not approved by NICE for NHS use. It was then reported in The Independent with the headline, Life-Extending Prostate Cancer Drug Rejected for NHS. I want to talk a little bit about the phase three trial for Olaparib. Only 9% of all the patients screened were eligible for inclusion. Another 9% had tumors expressing one of the pre-specified DNA 
a damage repair gene alterations, but they weren't eligible because of some other factors. While it, it was true that it might be a life-extending drug, it was actually only able to extend life in a very small subset of patients, and perhaps that nuance was lost. Exactly. So this particular cancer, metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer, it confers a really poor prognosis from the outset. So patients are going to be desperate to find treatments to halt the progression of their cancer, as well as delay the onset of any debilitating symptoms like bone pain and fracture. But with the data, we do know why NICE didn't approve the drug at the time. But not all patients know this, so you can imagine how they feel after reading the drug was not approved. But by the way, I want to add that very recently, NICE did go ahead and approve the drug based on cost-effectiveness estimates, but not clinical data. So it still doesn't change the fact that it's actually recommended for only a small specific subset of people with metastatic prostate cancer. It is challenging for clinicians to prepare patients for the small likelihood that they will have a cancer profile for which olaparib is effective. Our clinical advisor at the time, Dr. Pauline Leonard, mentioned that the danger of positive studies like this is that though they can provide a real hope for a minority, there is a bigger risk of false hope for so many more. This is why I think communications with uh, communicating with patients and their families is crucial uh, to address not only the, just the d- disease and the treatment options, but also to outline realistic goals. And the module goes on to discuss strategies to adopt, like body language, how to pose the right questions to the patient, how to convey information in the right way uh, so as to in- empower the patient, and how to manage challenges in communication. Can you give me an example of a challenge in communication? Dr. Faulkner and colleagues say that an important challenge is how families want to shield their loved ones from the diagnosis and burden of involvement. They're uh, worried about how the person would react if they knew about the diagnosis. So the module talks about always finding out if the patient wants to know and what level of detail they'd like to know. So ultimately, the oncologist must have the patient's best interest in mind. Absolutely. That sounds like good advice. Now, I've been reading that immunotherapy is associated with a different set of side effects for patients on top of better known side effects of chemo and radiotherapy. So is that a new challenge for clinicians as well to get the message across about what they might need to expect with immunotherapy? Yeah, despite improved outcomes, you do have uh, toxicities of all kinds of uh, anti-cancer therapy, radiotherapy, and now immunotherapy especially. Communicating this to the patients can be challenging, but on the positive side, there are written care plans and patient information sheets that detail the information and the potential side effects, along with contact details for emergency 24-hour help that would be really helpful. And clinicians can also signpost patients to online information like on Marie Curie, Macmillan Cancer Support and Cancer Research UK, for example, they have patient information sheets. The side effects of immunotherapy can be more serious and appear later on after discontinuation of therapy. And as a clinician, make sure you do know about the side effects through our module on why adverse events occur in immunotherapy. Well, thanks so much for Sangeeta. That was a really interesting topic to hear about. And you can find links to the modules we've talked about in the resources section of the podcast player. So thank you for joining us for this interview segment of today's podcast. I have with me here our clinical advisor on women's health, Mr. Majid Abdel Rahman. 
Welcome, Majid. Hello, uh, and thank you very much for the invitation. Oh, not at all. And Mr. Abdul Rahman is a consultant urogynecologist at Liverpool Women's Hospital. And today I've asked him to talk to us about the problem of urinary incontinence in women because it's an important problem, one that may not be diagnosed until late and for which a reasonable amount can be done. So, first of all, could you? Talk a little bit about the different types of urinary incontinence that may affect women. Okay, so with regards to urinary incontinence, broadly speaking, it's defined as an involuntary leakage of urine. And again, broadly speaking, there are two main types of urinary incontinence. There is stress urinary incontinence and urge urinary incontinence. And a proportion of women may have a combination of both, and that is defined as mixed urinary incontinence. With regards to the stress urinary incontinence, this is an involuntary leakage of urine on effort or exertion or on sneezing or coughing. And with regards to urge urinary incontinence, this is an involuntary leakage of urine accompanied by or immediately preceded by the feeling of urgency of needing to go to the toilet to empty the bladder. So what's the scale of the problem of incontinence? So the prevalence of urinary incontinence ranges from 13 to about 35%. The problem of urinary incontinence is common, and this may be an underestimated figure. And this may be because it takes a long time for women to perhaps seek help or talk about the problem. A quarter of incontinent women wait for at least five years before seeking help for their problem. And the delays may be, as I mentioned, due to embarrassment or the misconception there may be nothing can be done about it or as I've heard before from some women, that it's a normal part of ageing. Overall, stress urinary incontinence is more prevalent than urge urinary incontinence, followed by mixed urinary incontinence. So that's quite astonishing that women wait so long to seek help. What questions could healthcare professionals be asking to help uncover this problem? It's very important that healthcare professionals are aware that something can be done, because a lot can be done to help women who have urinary incontinence. There are a few key aspects of the history when seeing a woman in primary care that could be asked. So for example, to define stress urinary incontinence, a doctor may want to ask if the woman has any urinary leakage associated with coughing, laughing, sneezing, sexual intercourse, because that would be a very helpful element of the history. When trying to ask about whether the woman has urge urinary incontinence, the key thing really to ask about is that, first of all, do you have any urinary urgency? So do you have a feeling of a rush to get to the toilet? And is that accompanied by leakage of urine? So that's the urge urinary incontinence aspect of it. Thank you. And what are the key causes of incontinence? So there are a few risk factors for developing urinary incontinence. As I mentioned, the prevalence does increase with age. Pregnancy and childbirth is another very important risk factor. Smoking, obesity, and having had a previous hysterectomy. The reason behind that is that there is damage to the endopelvic fascia and the nerve supply to the area. Another important but less commonly noted risk factor is having a connective tissue abnormality. So in those who have Marfan syndrome or Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, it would be important to ensure that you ask about urinary symptoms as well. Great, thank you. So as a consultant urogynecologist, what are you seeing that you shouldn't be seeing that indicates perhaps a learning need amongst other clinicians? 
So with the current waiting times, seeing a clinician in secondary care from the initial GP referral can take a long time, between six months and 12 months, depending on where you are. So there are lots of things that can be done in primary care to help reduce the woman's symptoms so that the more invasive options can be attempted at secondary care. So, for example, in women who have symptoms of overactive bladder, by addressing some of lifestyle factors such as avoiding tea, coffee, fizzy drinks, smoking, citrus type of fruits like lemon or orange, all of these can help actually reduce the woman's symptoms. When those have been attempted in the first instance, then you could start medication in primary care. There is no reason why not. So, for example, usually a trial of anticholinergics, you could try two anticholinergics, and you usually start at the lower dose and then increase to the higher dose if there is no improvement after four to six weeks. It is important that women are advised of the side effects, for example, dry mouth, dry eyes, constipation. And if they have, for example, constipation to begin with, then it may be important to think about the second line treatment, which is the beta-3 agonists. And that would be the second line treatment in terms of tablets when thinking about the management of women who have an overactive bladder. With regards to beta-3 agonists, specifically one should ask about if the woman has severe uncontrolled high blood pressure. And it has to be severe and uncontrolled for the beta-3 agonist to be contraindicated. With regards to the management of stress urinary incontinence, again, there's quite a lot that could be done before the woman arrives to secondary care. For example, achieving a body mass index in the region of 30. If the woman can be referred to see a woman's health physiotherapist before coming to secondary care, again, that kind of saves quite a lot of time. A lot of women will say that they do pelvic floor exercises, but the role of one-to-one physiotherapy is crucial, and that's by seeing a woman's health physiotherapist. So that allows lots to be done in the first instance in primary care before coming to secondary care. Thank you. For clarification, could I just ask you about the BMI aspect? When you say BMI of 30, do you mean if they're over that to try and get down? That's correct, yes. So for example, if the body mass index is above 30, so a combination of height and weight, it's really important that the woman strives her best to achieve a body mass index in the region of 30, because certainly when it comes to 35, then that limits any invasive treatment options limits their efficacy, and so on. Thank you. So what kind of outcomes are possible for the patients that you see? So it is really important from the outset to set expectations. Urinary incontinence is very common, and there are lots that can be done to help women. It is important to set the expectation that the aim really is to help improve the symptoms. So it's not a cure, it's to help achieve an improvement in symptom control. And the outcome really is to help reduce the frequency of rushing to the toilet. And in some women with the tablets, with the physiotherapy treatment program, they achieve symptom control by just those simple methods that we've discussed. Brilliant. So what key learning points based on research and your clinical practice would you like to pass on to GPs and other clinicians? I think the most important thing for GPs and other clinicians to be aware of is the National Institute of Clinical Excellence Guidelines on Urinary Incontinence in Women. There's lots of information in that guideline, which is a national guideline, and has lots of information as to what can be done in primary care before women come and be referred on to secondary care. So I would strongly recommend that people have a a read through the, the executive summary of that guideline. And where possible, if you can refer to a local physiotherapist, 
please do. If you could start treatment in primary care, that would be also ideal. Thank you. Can you talk about a patient or clinician who's particularly inspired your practice in this area? So I started having an interest in urogynecology specifically during my training when I was a specialist trainee in Northern Ireland. So I worked with a few inspiring urogynecologists who have helped me quite a lot to understand and perform the procedures that we do in urogynecology. And this has been further cemented to this uh, enthusiasm by doing a fellowship in urogynecology in Southampton and following that further subspecialist training in urogynecology at Liverpool Women's Hospital. So I have to say that these were the, the people that inspired me to pursue a career in urogynecology. Brilliant. Oh, well, thank you so much for your interesting answers to our many questions about this area and for sparing the time to give us your expertise. We will, of course, be hearing from Majid in various ways and various guises. He writes our regular monthly research briefings on obstetrics and gynaecology. He's frequently speaking at our webinars and events. So we'll hear from him again soon. But it was really illuminating to cover this particular issue today. So thank you very much, Majid. Thank you very much, Pat. And uh, thanks to all the team and for the invitation today. Thank you. Thank you. I'm back with Dawn and Sangeeta for our Learning Nugget section drawn from our regular monthly research briefings in each specialty. I just wanted to highlight a study that was chosen by both our mental health advisor, Dr. Mafazal Rawala, and also our GP advisor, Dr. Ravi Ramanathan. It's quite unusual for this to happen across the different specialty areas, and I think they both chose it to feature in their monthly research briefings because the results seem a little bit counterintuitive. The meta-analysis that they both talked about was looking at mental health before, during and after the COVID pandemic. And apparently this analysis indicates no significant change in the general population for general mental health or anxiety symptoms, although there was a minimal worsening of depression symptoms. So Dr Ramanathan described this as somewhat surprising. My impression is that GPs felt they encountered a lot of people suffering mental health issues during the pandemic. It is quite interesting to read reactions to this study elsewhere. One comment from Dr Peter Tyra was that social cohesion, in spite of lockdowns and social distancing, improves when there's a common enemy. So perhaps being all in it together has a protective effect. Do you think underreporting might have been an issue with this study? I mean, first off, it looks like many of the studies were self-reported, and which is always an issue with mental health-related studies. And second, I can see a person minimizing his or her own mental health problem in 2020, 2021, around then, because the general assumption, at least within the UK at the time, was that healthcare services are overburdened and the tendency was you don't want to add to that. Yeah, and I think based on my personal experience, I'm wondering whether it's too early to know the true impact of the pandemic on people's mental health. I mean, during the pandemic, I think I went into survival mode and I just did what I needed to get through it. And it's only now that things are better, I'm beginning to realise how much I was affected. Hmm, that's really interesting. And I do think this study raises a lot of questions for me one question is whether the current cost of living crisis will actually have a more profound effect on people's mental health than the pandemic. 
there's anecdotal evidence from the Mental Health Foundation and others that this may be so. And I guess that will be the subject of future research. So, thank you very much, Dawn and Sangeeta. And in a fortnight, we'll be back with more key learning points drawn from our clinical learning modules. And we'll see you then.